Hello, everyone, and welcome to Post Podium, a podcast where former Jeopardy contestants are instead given questions and asked to provide answers. I'm your host, Jarek Bruel, and joining me today is Roan Talzma. A librarian from Chicago, Illinois, Roan is best known for ending Jeopardy Ultra champion Amy Schneider's historic 40-game run on January 26, 2022. He joins the likes of giant killers of Jeopardy's past, including Nancy Zerg, who ended Ken Jennings' 74-game run in 2004, Emma Betcher, who ended James Holtzauer's 32-game run in 2019, and Jonathan Fisher, who ended Matt Amodio's 38-game run in 2021. Only a handful of contestants can say that they not only won a game of Jeopardy, but also up against a daunting and formidable opponent. I'll be taking Roan on a trip down memory lane by asking him questions about that fateful taping day and how he managed to keep such a big secret for over two months. Normally at this point in my intro, I'd warn you about spoilers, but let's face it, if you watch enough Jeopardy and are listening to this podcast, simply put, you already know what happened. So let's cut to the chase. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Post Podium. Okay, I'm so excited to get started. Let's start with your name, when you made your Jeopardy debut, and the results you achieved. Well, my name is Roan Talzma, and I was on Jeopardy on January 26, 2022, um, and I was a one-day champion, and I won $29,600, and then I came in third in my second game. Great. And before we start, I'd like to thank you, Roan, for not only reaching out to be a guest on the podcast, but also to share some love for the podcast post-podium. I can only, you know, gauge the audience reception based on the ratings and place the show gets. So when I read your feedback, it really meant a lot to me. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Derek. I think what you're doing is so cool. I love podcasts. I love Jeopardy. This is like, if I had the time and the wherewithal, this was like something that after I was on, I like thought about doing myself. So I just think that this is really cool. And I love that you're doing it. We are recording this podcast a little over three months to the day since your episode aired, but if you ask me, it feels much longer. I mean, my episode <laughs> aired in February, and it feels like forever ago already. What have Seriously. you been up to since then? Do you still work as a librarian? Do people still come to you saying, oh, I know you're from Jeopardy, or is the novelty of being on the show worn off by now? Oh my gosh, such a big question for me. I've actually been really busy, so I'll just get the, the big piece of it out of the way. So basically, um, I... I'm going to be starting a new job at the end of the month in three weeks. I'm going to be working for a tech startup, um, doing some work in their customer experience department. And I am excited. I basically just realized that being a librarian, while I love it, was just like, to keep it simple, was just like not really working for me anymore for various reasons. And so I um, started looking for something. It's actually really funny how it lined up with my Jeopardy experience because I kind of had my breakthrough. So I auditioned in July of 2021. And then I kind of had my breakthrough that I needed to start looking for a new job in September. And then I got the call in October. I taped in November. And then my episodes were in January. And then I started interviewing for this job at the end of March. And it took kind of a long time to find out what would happen. And then I got the offer. And now I'm going to be starting at the end of May. So it's both things kind of eclipsed each other like at the same time. I have like a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> I'm really into astrology. And so I also had my 29th birthday over this uh, like six month, seven month period. And that was like my Saturn return for people who care about astrology who might know what that is. It's basically kind of like the kind of really becoming an adult. <laughs> it's like kind of your, your sort of like rite of passage, like into like true adulthood. And so, you know, a lot of really intense stuff like that can kind of happen during that period. And that was definitely true for me. So yeah, people are still coming up to me all the time. I'm definitely a huge celebrity at my library more than I am like anywhere else. It was overwhelming. I'm not going to lie, especially like in your workplace, because you're like, I'm trying to work. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it can just be like a little much. I hope that's not bad to say. It's it's really flattering. But it's also like for anyone who's been on or at least anybody who's been on and kind of got a lot of attention the way that I did, it is really overwhelming if you're not used to that. And so in a way, I am kind of glad that it's continuing to kind of fade and in, into the past. And I can kind of just sort of you know be me again the day you defeated amy the pop culture news website vulture released an article about the game and interviewed you to get your thoughts on a lot of things including questions i wanted to ask you in today's episode so before things get too repetitive i want to go through this interview and use it as a framework for our conversation maybe you can elaborate more on what you said or provide more context does that sound good to you that sounds great i had so much fun with that interview it was the first one that i did i said yes to a lot of press like probably <laughs> more than i should have i love reading vulture and i had a lot of of fun with that interview and i'm excited i haven't read it since it came out and so <laughs> sure this sounds great I, it'll, i'll probably cringe a little bit but bring it all right the first question is about your signature yellow green glasses that you wore on the show which mm -hmm. you found through an instagram ad 
do you regularly shop on Instagram or did the algorithm just happen to work out that day and convince uh, you to buy them? Wow, hitting the like really hard hitting questions early, like my Instagram shopping habits are, are a talking <laughs> point. No, it's so funny. I I had always been like, no, I'm not gonna like get sucked into Instagram ads. Like it's probably like crappy quality, like whatever. And so I would always avoid them. But those glasses, they just they haunted me. Like I would think <laughs> about them when I closed my eyes. Like I just like I just, they kept coming back. The algorithm really had me down with these glasses. They were like, we know that you're going to love these. And they were, the frames were $20. I think like with wow, my prescription that's, lens. Wow, that's super yeah. cheap. Oh, ridiculous. Yeah, like with my prescription lenses, I think they probably came out to about $75. It's with like blue light blocking and like stuff like that. Yeah. So I was very dubious, but I just, I just went for it. I have, and I, some people were like, did you get those? So you would like stand out on Jeopardy? And I did not. I got those in May. And then I was invited to audition, just happened to be invited to audition in June. And so the glasses also played like a major role, especially since it's been over. I've stopped wearing them too, for the most part. So they also were kind of like a part of that whole little crazy life period that I just was describing. But, and now I do shop on Instagram more. They were my, they were my gateway. <laughs> so that's unfortunate for my wallet, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Your situation reminded me of like a couple of these YouTube videos I've seen before of like where people just scroll through Instagram and buy whatever they see. And then they get those this items. This is like a, a genre of video. This yeah, is on yeah, like YouTube it actually or TikTok. Is. Well, yeah. Um, I think I think the YouTuber was either Danny Gonzalez or what's the other one? Drew Gooden. One of them did like a like a video on like Instagram ads, and they just like bought okay, a bunch wow. of stuff and they like reviewed it, whether it was like good quality or not. Most of it was quality but it sounds like you struck gold there with the the glasses <laughs> i yeah i really did and i haven't necessarily i'm trying to think if there's any other notable instagram purchases that i've made those are really the that's the one that counts anything else is just like random clothes sometimes if it's a good deal or something now this might be a long shot but did the company reach out to you to either thank you or give you free stuff i know after the college tournament a few of us college students who answered clues about certain brands were contacted to receive some goodies so i was wondering if you had a similar experience I'm so glad that you guys had that going on too. I don't think that's every Jeopardy contestant, but I, I was contacted by a couple brands. And so, but at that company, I, they were even had like a different name by the time I was on the show and was like talking about them. Like, the, cause it's all like drop shipped or whatever. Mm, right. Yeah, so like, yeah. you know, who knows where it's like actually coming from. So no, that company did not reach out to me, but Warby Parker did. Oh wow. And Warby Parker gave me a coupon code and gave me the glasses that I'm wearing right now. My brown aviators that are now kind of my signature. These glasses are incredible and I got them completely for free, which was like incredibly generous. And so that was really nice of them. I don't know why I think they just, I, cause my glasses were not Warby Parker glasses. So I, <laughs> I wasn't like doing press for them, but I guess um, there was conversation about glasses and they have their, they have their ear to the conversation about glasses on social media, I guess. And so they jumped on it. And so I, I did shout them out in a post because I thought that that was very generous of them. And I love these glasses and they're very nice quality. And I, I'm, I'm thrilled with them. So, and they're a pair that I would have never bought with my own money. Like I took a <laughs> risk and it like was, it really paid off. So there was that. And then the only other one was actually the Pokemon company reached out to me because at what? the end of this, at the, Jarek, at the end of this interview that you are using to guide our conversation, yeah. I talk about Legends Arceus, which also, mm -hmm. which came out the week that I was on Jeopardy and, um, which I haven't played by the way. So <laughs> don't ask me about it. <laughs> I'm really lazy with video games. I like procrastinate. Like I wait like a year until they, after they've come out to play them. I don't know. I'm weird. I like to look up how everything works and like have all the literature. And I feel like mm. that doesn't come out until like a year after the game is out. So anyway, that was annoyingly nerdy, but yeah, the Pokemon company, like they reached out to me on, on social media and they were like, what are your favorite Pokemon? Like, we want to like send you some goodies. And I was like, this is ridiculous. But I was like, so I was like, I generally, I was like, I love poison types. I was like, basically like, you know, like the Oddish line, the ghastly line, the coughing line and the, and the Grimer line are kind of like my, my like gen one poison babies those are always like the if when i close my eyes if i'm a pokemon mm. trainer like that's who i have so like i'm like a team rocket grunt basically and so <laughs> I, I gave i was like those are the vibes and what they did was they ended up sending me a bunch of really awesome enamel pins of the sprites oh of wow three of those lines of the oddish line which is my favorite so i'm really glad i got that one and then the coughing line and the grimer line i didn't get any Gengar merch, which I was surprised by because they have so much Gengar stuff. I sound like I'm complaining. <laughs> this was incredibly nice of them. <laughs> they sent these awesome pins, and then they also sent me these really heavy bookends of the fully evolved Kanto starters that are like silver. They're huge. It's and really heavy. I know. I was like, this is wild. The Venusaur one, which is obviously my favorite, is at my 
desk at work and then i have the charizard one is on my bed and i don't i think blastoise is in the living room oh my god that's those are two amazing stories holy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i had a good time it was that was a really intense uh couple of weeks there really great vulture also referenced buzzy cohen the 2017 tournament of champions winner when comparing both of your stylistic choices today he's currently a chaser in the third season of abc's the chase this next question is less about buzzy and more so about game shows in general are you a fan of other trivia game shows would you like to be on another one someday like the chase who wants to be a millionaire masterminds or is jeopardy enough trivial entertainment for you great question um First of all, I was beyond flattered by that comparison. Buzzy's like style is like so beyond immaculate, and like I was so flattered that like he like before anybody even knew like how I did on Jeopardy or what was going to happen to me. Buzzy like quote tweeted me and complimented my glasses. I was like, oh my god. Okay, so game shows, yeah. So it's funny. I used to watch game shows a lot when I was a kid. Like I remember watching Game Show Network um, and watching like the old version of Lingo. Um, was the one that I really loved. And then I remember, like, vintage ones like Card Sharks and, like, stuff. And, like, uh, you know, what's the, uh, oh, Press Your Luck and stuff like that. And Match Game and stuff. I remember I was, like, a little kid, like, around, like, seven when, like, Millionaire with Regis was, like, re- got really big. And John Carpenter won a million dollars and stuff. I remember that happening. I was, like, really into that. I remember thinking that was, like, really cool. But Jeopardy has always been a thing for me, you know. But I, like... You know, I, I remember watching Ken when I was 11. Yeah, I was, like, really into Jeopardy with my uncle. And um, it's not like I was, like, watching every single day because it airs at 3.30 in the Chicago market. So um, it was, like, really hard to watch. And I don't know. I just never bothered to DVR it. But basically, yeah, Jeopardy's been the main one. Um, and it was the only show that I had, like, ever tried to get on. And I've been trying to get on since about 2016. So it took me, like, five tries. For me, it's, like, trivia. I really enjoy the competitive aspect of trivia and so i don't like have to be on tv to do that and so i'm hoping that like in the future i'll be able to start doing like bar trivia and stuff like that because i don't know like being on jeopardy that was like a very singular experience like i had never really done anything like that like i did a little bit of quiz bowl in high school and then like stopped and that was it didn't do it in college and then since obviously i haven't gotten to do anything like that so i'm like looking for that you know whatever that feeling is basically with whatever it is that i do but yeah game shows are i guess hit or miss for me but i'm excited for the new lingo with rupaul and i think i'm gonna probably apply to be on that one too with my friend tom so we'll see you actually answered all the questions i had for my next question which was basically i do that a lot you don't have to give me much (laughs) jarek yeah basically i was gonna ask you like oh what got you into the show how trivia become part of your life and how many times did you audition and so on and so forth so yeah we got that out of the way (laughs) i know i'm trying to think if there's anything else in there that's like relevant yeah i mean took the test five times but only auditioned once which I guess is is rare. I remember talking to, well, not, I don't know, but like I was talking to Sarah Jett Rayburn, had an interview with her and Jennifer Quayle. Basically, like they both said that they had auditioned in person, like when you had to drive to the audition city multiple times before they got on the show, which I found shocking. I was like, if I, they, like, if I were like repeatedly called out to like do this audition and it's not even on Zoom, I have to drive and I'm doing that multiple times like and i'm not getting on i that would have driven me crazy so it just hit me how lucky i got so while amy wasn't able to lap herself meaning taping her games as they were airing she was very Uh, close to doing i just took her right out just in time yeah literally (laughs) like she would have lapped herself on the next taping day yep amy taped her first game on september 28th 2021 which ended up airing about two months later on november 17th Amy's final game, i.e. the one in which Roan won, taped on November 9th, which ended up airing on January 26, 2022. November 9th was one of the rare air dates this Jeopardy season where there wasn't a super champion playing. Tyler Rhodes' five-day winning streak had recently come to an end while Andrew Hees was about to begin. Knowing this, Roan, assuming you were caught up on the show, were you worried someone like Matt Amodio, Jonathan Fisher, or Tyler Rhodes would be waiting for you at the studio? I was not worried at all. And I should have been. I was, um, I had a really relaxing evening the night before watching Kate Cohn win Jeopardy. Just want to give her a shout out as being the person who was the reigning champ on my air date and also being just like an incredible person. So I watched her game the night before, was just like, ah, Jeopardy, such an awesome season. So many amazing champions and contestants. I'm so lucky. I'm like in my tiny little Airbnb in LA, like watching it. And then I'm still really nervous, obviously. Um, But no, I was not worried at all because like, I probably was talking to Matea and I'm trying to like the way that the season has played out. It was just like, okay, like, you know, we had Matt and that was crazy because we had just had James two years before that. And so that was crazy. Not totally 
out of this world, but that was crazy. And then that's immediately followed by Amy, which is completely unprecedented. Like, you know, two nearly 40-day champions in one season. Like, you could not predict that. And now, I mean, no, no, we're not talking about Matea, so I won't, we won't dwell on this. But then now with Matea, I mean, I think I said that it's like, it's stranger, it's stranger than fiction. And so, like, to get to be a part of it was just really awesome. But at the time, that's what I was thinking about was just how cool the whole season had been. I was not at all anticipating running into anything more than like a five-day champion. I really like this part of the Vulture interview that I can only describe as resigning yourself. From the way I read it, it didn't necessarily sound like you were prepared to lose to Amy, but more so let go of any expectations you had for yourself, which I, I guess included winning. Was this change in attitude the key to maintaining your composure against an ultra champion? Were there any other factors that kept you, as you put it, zen-like and happy? That is that is still true. I'm like listening to that answer back and I'm like, was that my experience? Yeah, definitely. I, I do think that it was probably the key. If like if I could I mean the key was being in the right place at the right time. The the key was random chance, which influenced like every single thing that happened like during the game and before and after, really. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you know, like second to that, I would definitely say that yeah, like my mindset I think is what enabled me to do maybe what like other strong people on my taping day, like or previous taping days, like wasn't able to do. I mean, you could say that, yeah, I, I gave up or I just decided, okay, I'm not winning. But I feel like when I say it that way, it sounds like I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. Mm. But that wasn't my mindset. My mind, like I got on Jeopardy. I know that like, I deserve to be here. Everybody who's in this room deserves to be here, right? So in a normal circumstance, anybody in this room could win a game of Jeopardy, but it's just going to be like really, really statistically unlikely that I will be the one to win if I'm going against Amy. Like the numbers simply don't lie. So I, yeah, it's it's exactly like I said. I just kind of let go and just was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever gotten to do in my life. And I'm so lucky and I love trivia and I'm competitive and I love games. And this is just like literally the embodiment of everything that I love. So I was just like, let's just, let's just see what happens. I was, and also just as a huge fan of Jeopardy, I was just really elated that we were having such an amazing season that we had like a 40 day female champ, you know, or 38 day at the time that I thought was just like really cool and notable and getting to meet Amy. She was such a cool person. Like, so all of that, I just, all of that positive energy for me, I think, was what enabled me to just kind of go up there and just play Jeopardy and not really be thinking about the fact that I was against Amy. So you were the third game of the tape day, meaning you were able to observe two of Amy's games. You saw how dominant she was on the buzzer and acknowledged that you weren't half bad with it yourself. With this in mind, you said that if you were able to stay within 50% of Amy's score by the end of Double Jeopardy, not a lock game or runaway, and were able to capitalize on the daily double, you'd have a shot at winning the game. This leads me to ask what your strategy was before you knew you were going up against a 40-game ultra champion. And was this an adjustment you made in the moment or like on the fly seeing in the audience? Good question. I wish I had a more interesting answer. But my strategy that I had decided on was that I was going to kind of take the middle approach between a traditional approach and the Matt Amodio approach. Like the Matt Amodio approach and the Jackie Kelly approach being um, going for the very bottom row and cleaning those up and then finding the daily double, you know, true daily double and single and like the formula that Matt had, I thought was really interesting. I thought that was a really cool strategy, but I knew that that couldn't be my strategy because my trivia chops are not on the same level as someone like Jackie or Matt. I knew that I had to kind of split the difference. And so for me, I was definitely going to be going for rows three and four in categories that I liked. Um, I know that Amy said that she would go for categories she didn't like first, but for me, I you don't anticipate how good you're going to be on the buzzer. There's no way to really know for sure. You can practice, but you don't really know. And so I figured, like, I should not assume that I will be able to control the board enough to dictate play the way that Matt and Amy could. So for me, I was like, I'm just going to kind of split the difference and ride the middle and just also kind of, like, make my decisions on what to select kind of in the moment, but definitely in the interest of finding daily doubles. I definitely wanted to, almost more than feeling like I needed to find the daily doubles. I wanted to keep them away from my opponents to try to minimize random chance a little bit and kind of like keep things a little bit more up to trivia knowledge, buzzer speed and what the categories are rather than letting a daily double swing the game against me. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but my strategy changed definitely in the sense that I knew that I would have to be a lot more gutsy with my wagers 
going against someone like Amy, who is going to take off, like, and, and just speed ahead so quickly. She's so dominant from the jump. Like, you you see Amy coming. Like, I think some people are trying to say because she's maybe a little more reserved that Amy's, like, like a, a champion that you don't see coming. No, she is out of the gate picking clues up. And, like, by the time you get to the commercial break, she's usually got about 5,000 in the pot already. You know, you have to play against that by wagering aggressively if you find a daily double, which does require you to trust yourself a little bit. For me, I had no choice, right? And I don't know. I'll leave it at that. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and talk about Final Jeopardy wager strategy, which was super important for a game like this. Oh. First, was wager strategy a part of your prep process before taping for the show? I know some contestants either put a lot of time into learning it, while others just don't bother with it because math can be complicated sometimes, especially when you have a ton of people waiting for you to make your calculations on stage. I really, uh, I crapped the bed a little bit on this. I did not study for final Jeopardy wagering really at all. I don't know why. I couldn't tell you why. Like, I'm on the subreddit. Like, I'm in the community. Like, I, I care about this show a lot and I discuss it online so like the fact that I this did not really occur to me like I don't know why I didn't do it it was definitely and then once we knew that we were going to have Amy like it was definitely the last thing from my mind was thinking that final Jeopardy wagering would even be relevant mm. because I just assumed that like I was going to not be in contention and I would probably just wager to try to keep second place if that was an option you know I was 10k behind Amy I knew that Amy wasn't going to bet nothing, but I think for some reason when you're in that position, you just, you look at that number and all you're thinking is I just have to be higher than that number. Mm. So I'm looking at the 27,600 and I'm like, well, I'm like, I definitely need to have at least 27,601. So I was like, it just needs to be more than 10,000. And then I'm looking at Janice, I think had three something, 3,400, maybe 3,600, 36. Yeah. And so, and I had what? 17, four. Mm. Uh, so, 17.6, according 17, to six. So that's exactly a, what is that, a 14K drop? Like, yeah. so I was just thinking if she, if Janice bet nothing, which I thought was possible for sure in that game, I don't remember what she wagered, but she, I thought she might bet nothing. And so I was like, I need to stay above 3,600. And so I just, yeah, did not write anything down. Just kind of like in my head, I was like, what's between 10 and 13? Well, or 10 and 14, well, 12. That's what I did, basically. Yeah. So I don't know if that was the ideal wager. I'd love to know from you if you have like the little thing. Yeah. That, um so correction janice had 3200 but um oh, okay. it's not like it really mattered in the grand scheme of things so i'm about to explain the wagering scenario roan was in for his game against amy so if that doesn't sound too riveting to you i've provided timestamps in the episode description to skip ahead to our next topic i'll give everyone listening some time to find them Great. So the scenario that Roan finds himself in is known as a crush, where his score is between one half and two thirds of first place. In order to win, Amy not only has to get Final Jeopardy wrong, but Roan has to get Final Jeopardy right. Therefore, because Roan's win condition depends on him getting Final Jeopardy right, he should wager all of his 17,600. At the very least, his minimum wager should be 10,001, like he said before, to beat Amy by a dollar should she opt to wager zero for whatever reason. In reality, Roan wagered 12,000, which seems like a good wager at first, but because his score was so far ahead of Janice's, who I probably should have mentioned earlier as the third player in this game, my apologies, he could have capped his wager at 11,199, because doing so prevents him from falling behind Janice should she get Final Jeopardy right and double her score, thereby safely securing second place. Basically, what I'm trying to say is 12,000 was a large enough wager to win, but it could have put Roan in a, in third place if things had gone differently. Thank you for that very fair explanation. And yeah, also shout out to Janice, who was awesome. I was so glad that I got to play with her because um, she's like a choir director and I'm a singer. So we were like bonding over that. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. The only reason that I'm really kicking myself about my wager there was because, well, for one, you know, $6,000 on the line or so. But also, um, I always said geography is my is my thing geography is my category like that's like what i'm like known for like among like my friends or whatever my family like this is like everyone knows that this is like a thing i'm sitting in a room covered but there's maps on all of the walls so <laughs> i always said that i was going to wager everything if i got a final jeopardy that was in a geography category i would always say that like if it was a category like countries of the world if i'm at home i'm like well i'm betting the farm like there's no way i'm gonna get this wrong of course sometimes i do get it wrong i but i think because because there was so much on the line, I think, and that that was the one moment across my two games where I was like gun shy a little bit, like was a little like afraid, was trying to maybe keep a little bit of my money just because I was like, uh, I, I want second place because I want to break even on this trip, <laughs> so <laughs> like I really really want second place, so that that also 
did kind of kick in. Because again, up until literally the moment that they reveal Amy's face on the monitor, that was the moment that I realized that I'd won. Up until then, I am assuming that I've lost. So... I was thinking from that mindset, which is why I did not wager all of my money. In the realm of esports that I frequently keep up to date with, there's this term in tournament play that fans like to call the whimsy buff, where relatively underrated or an underestimated team makes an incredible makes incredible progress in a tournament against all odds because they essentially have nothing to lose. They're the dark horse or underdogs in most cases. It sounds like the whimsy buff could also apply to you, Roan. You said, and I quote, my mindset was so comfortable because I didn't care. I thought I was destined to lose, so I just did my best. I wasn't putting that pressure on myself and wasn't as hard on myself as the other contestants who played against Amy. I didn't jump in and guess. I only buzzed in when I knew the answers. I stayed calm as much as possible. I was biting her heels like a little dog the whole time. And while that might have been paraphrased because that kind of sounds stilted. Um... That is exactly what I said. Oh, really? <laughs> but I promise that it wasn't still. Obviously, it wasn't stilted when I said it. Yeah, you killed the delivery, Jarek. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I guess to wrap up our discussion about your approach to playing against Amy, how or where do you draw the line between having low expectations for yourself and feeling hopeless and defeated like you kind of alluded to it earlier? Because I feel like for me, if I started to think that, I'd be asking myself like a bunch of silly questions like, do I really deserve to be here on the stage or am I really set up for failure right here, right now? It was tough. I almost don't know how I... It was. It's tough in hindsight. In the moment, I think that I was just like so driven like by adrenaline that that those sorts of thoughts were just like not registering. But first of all, I want to talk about whimsy buff. I've never heard of that before and I love it. And I'm like, I'm flattered. Like I just started the second that you said it, I was like, huh. I'm like smiling. I'm like, that is totally me. That is exactly what happened. I was very whimsical for sure. <laughs> and, um, you know, Amy's, what Amy said about me was that the way that Ken described Nancy Zerg like Amy would describe me the same way. I was sitting next to her in the green room when it was announced that she had won 38 games. I don't exactly remember how that went down. Not everybody found out at first. It was like only people like on our side of the Wheel of Fortune set that like heard because she said it kind of quietly. <laughs> and um, But I was sitting right next to her and I literally laughed when she said it because like I didn't know Amy yet and I didn't know her personality and that was exactly how many games Matamodio had won at that time, 38. And so I really thought that she might have been joking. And so I laughed. And then I realized that she wasn't joking. And then, but like, I kept laughing because I was like nervous. <laughs> um, and, but basically, like, Amy is awesome. And we got along super, super well. Like, we were like talking like a fair amount during lunch. And like, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed spending time with Amy and getting to know her. And so what Amy said after was that, yeah, she was like, she, I was so congenial. I was so friendly with her. She noticed that like other contestants were on our taping day. I think a lot of us were really friendly with Amy, but I guess on like other taping days, maybe the contestants were like not as immediately warm to Amy or like nervous or whatever. And she didn't get that from me. And so that made her feel like I would maybe be the one to take her out. It wasn't about me anymore. Like it was about the experience. Mm. Like I, it, it was less about like, pivoting from like okay like I deserve to be here to I don't deserve to be here it went from pivoting from I deserve to be here to I'm here like I'm just here I just am here and I'm gonna do this like I you're not gonna walk out <laughs> right like because so for me like thinking oh I'm hopeless I'm defeated I don't deserve to be here that's me feeling like I want to leave hell no like I'm here to play Jeopardy and like I think that just being such a massive fan just like kind of like put like the wind under me a little bit and just like enabled me to just kind of like really enjoy the experience and be glad that I get to be a part of it. And like, I'm just going to be honest. I like attention. <laughs> like I was a theater kid in high school. I, you know, I'm on social media a lot. I like attention. And so I knew that like getting to be on TV, getting to tell everybody that I was on Jeopardy, I was so excited. So I just focused on that. I guess it really, it's just about focusing on the positives, but that's for an experience like Jeopardy that's very nuanced. And even if you have a horrible time, it's still very positive. Well, it can be like very positive and very negative. It's like extremes, I think. But you know, not this isn't this mindset isn't applicable to all life situations, I guess is what I'm saying. But that's how I felt in that moment. Because of COVID protocols on set, you weren't able to debrief with Amy or decompress after your win. Were you able to reconnect with her on your air date or sometime after? Yeah, so we did like, yeah, maybe like, basically like waved hello to each other and that was like pretty much it after I won which was like unfortunate I wanted to like give her a hug you know what I mean like yeah. I was so oh man I that was I don't even know how much time went by because I didn't wear a watch at the time I didn't have a watch it couldn't have been more than 30 minutes and that 30 minutes between like Wednesday and Thursday was like 
I mean, I had such an amazing day, but that was the hardest part. I suddenly idolized Amy, right? As a Jeopardy fan, looking at her as somebody who had won 40 games, I like I instantly idolized her. And I think that I needed I needed affirmation from her. And I did get it, but like I needed I needed it not in that moment where not only because of COVID protocols were distanced, but also because we're being shuffled around as like they're wrapping up for one game and then moving on to the next. This was after lunch. So like we went right into the next game after this. And so the timing sucked, but I did find, I found her on Instagram before all of this. She was like not very big on social media. She told me, but basically like, you know, we did like exchange messages there and it was really nice. And so I'm still uh, connected with her on Instagram. And obviously it's not like we talk every day, but I think that she's really awesome. I'm also like, hopefully, well, I'm definitely going to be able to travel to San Francisco now with this job that I got. And so I'm hoping never been to the Bay area before. And I'm really hoping that I might get to say hi to Amy when I'm there. Maybe, I don't know. On the topic of staying in touch, do you still keep in contact with your contestant cohort at all, or have a group chat of some sort? Um, Our cohort doesn't have a group chat, but I'm like, I'm on Jeopardy social media and I've like definitely kept kept in touch with people for my day. Everybody's really awesome. But like, I mean, I shouted out Janice from my game and I also want to shout out Maria from the game before me. We just like, we're very similar and just like, you know, like I, I loved everyone, but like everyone kind of like has their buddy, you know what I mean? Or something. That's like how it often works in these sorts of group settings. And like Maria was just like kind of my buddy. She, we just like really got along well, like lots of the same interests. And I still talk to her occasionally. Yeah, she's awesome. So, and yeah, I'm definitely like getting connected with the kind of like the larger like Jeopardy and like game show and trivia communities online. And so that's been really fun too. You're also a certified Ken Jennings stan from the way I read your praise of him. You even endorsed him to be the permanent host of Jeopardy. Could you tell us what it is about Ken that makes him the perfect successor to Alex Trebek? And if possible, can you recall an interaction with him that's a testament to his qualifications as a host? I don't, I actually, this I'm being pedantic, but I actually don't know if I would say that he's the perfect successor to Alex Trebek, just because I think that that's like putting maybe an unfair expectation on him. He's a very different host than Alex, but in a way that like I really like. And I think... The reason that he's perfect is because he knows what it's like. He like mm. he's played more games of Jeopardy than p- probably anyone else, right? So I mean, he he knows Jeopardy like experientially better than anyone else, and so to me, like I mean, that experience is invaluable, and it, it comes out in ways that are it's almost difficult to put into words. You can just tell that like he gets it, like when he talks to you and he looks at you, like you can tell that he knows what it's like to be experiencing what you're experiencing and he and he empathizes. I'm trying to think if there's like a specific interaction that we had. I don't know, he complimented my glasses and that'll not, that alone was like, just like made me really happy. And I was also in my nervousness kind of like doing this bit where I was like really playing up my Ken Jennings obsession. Like I would kind of as like a nervous tick, I kept referring to him by his full name, Ken Jennings. Like I wouldn't call him just Ken and he thought that that was funny. So I, <laughs> that's what I think I'm getting at is that he laughed at my jokes And that is enough for me to think that somebody is perfect and should be the host of Jeopardy, for sure. I can't say anything that everyone else hasn't already said. (laughs) He's amazing. Before we move on, here's a small dose of meta trivia for our listeners. Following Roan's win, fans on Jeopardy on social media were quick to point out that both Amy Schneider and James Holzhauer's winning streaks came to an end after they were defeated by, oddly enough, librarians from Chicago. But did you also know that Amy and Matt Amodio's winning streaks ended with the same final Jeopardy category? Countries of the World was the last Final Jeopardy category both Ultra Champions faced during their runs. The answer to Amy's final was Bangladesh, while the answer to Matt's final was Austria. I hope someone out there listening found that as fascinating as I did, because I couldn't believe it until I confirmed it for myself on J-Archive. Anyway, back to Roan. Earlier this month, Raymond Goslow, who finished as the first runner-up in the JNCC, published an article this month about his experience on Jeopardy and how being a librarian contributed to his success on the show. Rowan, you already talked about being a librarian with Vulture, but I think our listeners would still be interested in hearing you speak candidly about how being a librarian helped your performance. What do you think it is about librarians that allows them to do so well on Jeopardy? I love this question. This is like probably my last time answering it as as someone with librarian in their job title. So I'm almost like emotional. (laughs) Um, I am so passionate about libraries and librarianship. And I think that like, it's such an important institution in our society. And I think that the reason that librarians are so well suited for Jeopardy is because like our entire job is dedicated to figuring stuff out. I mean, everyone's job is a little bit different in a library. Not everybody does the same stuff. But like when you're working at a reference desk in a public library, anybody can walk in. They can ask you any question. And your job is to find the answer. Um, They're not questions like what you're necessarily going to see on Jeopardy. But I think that like the mental process 
of deducing things from context, um, I think is something that librarians are really good at. Like somebody will come in with kind of like 50% of the information that you need and you have to figure out the other 50% from context. And that's often Jeopardy clues. That's a huge one, I think. Yeah, just kind of like being expected to like kind of produce information on the spot. Like obviously we're looking it up. It's not like we're working off the top of our heads. But, you know, I think that just says kind of like prepare you to answer questions promptly and accurately. And of course, you know, we're, we're generalists. We're always kind of reading about looking up things that, you know, people who have a specialty are going to go into that specialty, but people who just love information and love learning are often going to become librarians in my experience. So I think it just makes sense that those exact same types of people are people that love trivia and excel at it. And finally, to wrap up our discussion that began with Vulture, when asked what your dream Jeopardy category would be, you said one about Pokemon, and we talked about it already. You're yep. a huge fan of the franchise and occasionally tweet about it. So I have a few Pokemon related questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, please. Okay, so first... What generation got you into Pokemon, and what was your first Pokemon video game? Generation 2 would have been my entry point into Pokemon. Those games came out when I was 7 years old, I think, 6 or 7. Probably played them a little bit late. I was always a late adopter. My first Pokemon game that I can remember playing was Pokemon Gold. Can you name your favorite Pokemon from each generation, 1 through 8? But if not, can you tell us one of your favorites? I could probably do every generation. I think this might not be my definitive favorite, but it'll probably be kind of the first one that comes to mind. Gen 1 is definitely Vileplume. Maybe I'll do group, the group of Pokemon, like the Oddish line, Oddish Gloom and Vileplume, my absolute favorites. Like they're just these like creepy little onion witches. And I just think that they're so cool. Gen 2. Oh, what's a big standout from Gen 2? I never picked starters, but I got to say Chikorita and Bayleaf and Meganium. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. I mean, the gays love Chikorita. Oh, Gen 3 had some like serious heavy hitters that I love. Sableye sticks out to me. I remember just thinking that that one was like so cool. Yeah, I really like Altaria a lot. And then from Gen 4, eh, actually, I don't know if I could think of one from Gen 4, because they're just all like evolutions from other games. I guess I'll probably stop there because my fandom kind of like wanes a little bit, I guess, from there. I hate to say it. Um, but I did play Sword and Shield. And so I'll say my favorite from Gen 8. Oh, and I can't remember its name. It's the one that's like a, a dragon that's like a tower. Oh, uh, Duraludon? Duraludon. I thought that was a really cool design. Yeah, I could probably think of some other ones too. I think Gen 8 had some really cool Pokemon designs for sure. The next generation of Pokemon games arrives later this year in November, Pokemon Scarlet and Pokemon Violet. Do you know which game you'll be getting and which starter Pokemon you'll choose? Definitely getting Pokemon Violet. Purple's my favorite color and we finally have a purple Pokemon game and this is like extraordinary news for me. Have the final evolutions come out yet? No, I think it's just the base forms. Yeah, so I'm waiting to see the final evolutions. I'm actually really torn between um, Sprigatito and Fuecoco. I love them both a lot. And yeah, I usually go with either grass or fire, usually grass. I actually have never finished Gen 5 or Gen 6, but in both of my more recent attempts, um, I picked Tepic and Fennekin respectively. But then otherwise, I've always chosen the grass starter. All right. So going back to the list of questions that I have prepared for all of my guests, what was your watch party experience like? Did you go all out for your first episode or did you keep it relatively small and low key? My watch party experience was unfortunately um, impinged upon by the Omicron variant. So I did not have like a full on watch party. I did have a small watch party with just like a few close friends the night of my episode. And then also had like a discord chat going so people could like tap into like the party and some people actually did which was like kind of cool and then i did have with like a slightly larger group of friends when things had like chilled out about a month later i had like a uh that kind of a makeup watch party with like those folks so i did have really I, it was obviously a really great experience it was stressful in a way it was stressful for me specifically because my experience was so kind of um explosive so i was like really stressed out about it at times but also yeah had like a really fun time with it what did you end up doing for your second episode um my second episode i didn't i did not really do anything i think i still did my discord chat and we we watched it together i feel like i kind of signaled to everyone that i lost because i like didn't have another watch party as we were just watching on discord so i think that told everyone that but also like if i had gone on a run i wasn't gonna have people in my house every night makes you wonder what amy did for her all of her 40 games yeah i wonder i mean i'm sure it became like old hat that's eight weeks of jeopardy yeah. that's two months <laughs> Were there any standout DMs or mentions from friends, family, or random people in social media that caught your attention? And if so, could you share some of the more memorable interactions with our listeners? Totally. Um, it's so funny that this is the first one that stands out, but Ian Terry, the winner of Big Brother 14, followed me on Twitter. Oh my god, me too! Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was like, nice! <laughs> like, dude, huge fan. Um, also, uh, um, the drag queen Meatball followed me. 
Um, she has not, she's been on Dragula for anyone who's listening and might watch Dragula. If you haven't watched it and you like drag content, watch Dragula, but, um, Meatball followed me. That was pretty cool. Um, there's, I think some other people who followed me that like stuff like that, that made me really happy. Also like had a lot of people like from high school and stuff reach out, which was like crazy and cool because like, um, I've kind of like been on quite a journey in my life since high school and like haven't necessarily I haven't like burned bridges okay but you know I'm just like not always the best at like keeping up with people like from my past and it really made me feel really loved and supported that like so many people who've known me like my whole life were like so excited for me it was really awesome it really made my heart happy for sure next question how did you prepare for your Jeopardy debut? Past guests on this podcast have said they prepared flashcards, binge watched the show, played through several games using J Archive. Was your prep process a combination of those things, or was there anything unique to your prep process that hasn't come up already? So I would say my number one studying tool was actually Wikipedia. And for me, I relied on Wikipedia because I love Wikipedia. I read an article from it probably every day, and I just like... I, I know it. I, I know the language of like Wikipedia and like it, it, it just seemed like the most natural way for me to kind of like get in there. So I just started like reading info boxes on Wikipedia articles about like stuff that I didn't feel super sure about. There was some categories like sports in the Bible basically where I was kind of just like, there's just no way. So I just didn't touch it at all. Cause like I have I have no knowledge base to even draw from or start with. But then with and then there was stuff like geography that I feel very confident in but for kind of all the stuff in the middle yeah I mostly use Wikipedia but I did also use J Archive classics is not something I'm very strong in so I'll use that as an example like I just went on J Archive and just would type in in the search bar like Plato and then it's just going to give you like every single clue that involves Plato Plato might be the answer Plato might be in the clue or Plato might be in the category so you can kind of figure out like the Pavlovs are for Plato so it's like you know like if they mention like something about the cave or if they mention like Aristotle's teacher or like whatever you know you can like start to make those connections without having to actually know the material so I did that not very systematically I'll be honest, was like doing it while I'm working at the reference desk a lot was kind of like the main place that I would study. Um, I, I was not very systematic or organized, but that's just not how I am. I've never been, I've never been someone to study hard before a test. I don't know. I just kind of like tend to learn things gradually over time and kind of, I think Jennifer Quayle said something like, I don't know things because I want to know them. Like I just know them. And that's kind of been my experience. That's I guess, a great too, in my quote. Life. <laughs> yeah. That's my, that's a, that's paraphrasing. I, I'm not sure exactly how she said it, but I don't know. I agreed with her. What categories did you feel most prepared for and which ones did you feel least prepared for? I think you said geography was your I, strongest. I think I answered that. Yeah, geography and I would say and then from there like history I'm 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 pretty good. And I think that like because of my background in women's and gender studies usually when like things that are more a little bit related to like identity politics or those sorts of like interdisciplinary kind of categories I feel like are often like good for me. I don't honestly read a lot of books, which I really sounds crazy because I'm a librarian, but I read, I just, I, I don't read a lot of novels or, or like fiction, but I tend to do better in say like a women authors category, for example, versus like 19th century authors, for example. And then like pop culture, I think I, I was probably above average, I think for a Jeopardy person. And I mean, I just attribute that to living my entire life on Twitter, especially for the last two years. And, and music in particular is something I really love. So music categories I'm usually excited about. I, I don't watch movies. So yeah, like cinema was something I had to kind of dig into and like classic literature and like philosophy and those sorts of that kind of part of you of the humanities i'm a little bit less strong in but like government and like civics and politics and history and geography is like my the stuff that i like during the category reveals in both of your games was there ever a moment when you said to yourself oh i got this or oh no this could be bad for me i have a good one for my second game so u.s place names came up in single jeopardy and i was like awesome gonna run a category on jeopardy i'm so excited and it was like it was like jigsaw wrote them like, they were so hard. Like, one of them was about, like, a town in Florida. I mean, mind you, I was so nervous in this game. Maybe they weren't that hard. But, like, I remember one of them, the answer was French Lick, Indiana. Have you ever heard of that? Nope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in that game, too, in my second, in, in Double Jeopardy, there was a category that was movies and geography. And I rolled my eyes because I was like, oh, great. The geography category is about movies. So I'm not going <laughs> to, this is the geography category for the, well, there were two geography categories in, in that game and I, I biffed them both. But categories for my games that I liked, also in my second game, I loved Fathers of the Nation. I was excited about that one and I did all right in that. The alphabet category ended up doing well for me and, and also the serial category randomly in my, uh, 
in my first game. I'm surprised like Cheerios didn't reach out. And there was a football category in single in my first game that I hated. I do call it single Jeopardy, by the way. I'm sorry if that triggers anybody. It's easier for me. Yeah, the football category I knew that I wasn't going to get, but I did get the Chicago Bears. Moving on, we have the topic of the ever so mysterious Jeopardy buzzer. What was your technique? Did you buzz in based on lights surrounding the clue board or the cadence of Ken's voice? And if possible, could you describe the way in which you held the buzzer? I went with the lights. I determined in rehearsal that the lights were, I got in consistently once I started using the lights. And so I decided to swear by that. That impacted me in my second game because when you move to the um, returning champion podium, your perspective on the board is different. And I I felt like I couldn't get in as consistently in my second game, honestly, for that reason. But it worked well for me. And then I held the buzzer like James Holzhauer did. I thought that that was a good technique. So I just had my wrists crossed, basically. I was, I was holding my right wrist with my left hand and just had them in front of me like that the whole time so nobody could see my hands. I just felt like that was the most effective strategy because then people wouldn't see me coming. If that's, that made sense in my mind at the time. While you were on the show, you were able to share with everyone watching two fun anecdotes. The first was that you taught an online dating class for senior citizens at your library. Could you tell us more about that? Was that like a weekly meeting or a one-off type of event? Oh, if that were a weekly or even a monthly, that would have been amazing. But no, it was a one-off that I taught in May of 2019. And basically, like I had been teaching computer classes at that library for about a year at that point and just wanted to change it up. Like just felt like I was always offering really boring stuff. And like my coworkers got to like plan like really fun programs about like bats and like cool stuff. And I was like, but I just like have to keep teaching people how to use Word. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I decided to throw some weird stuff at them. And so I did like some, I offered some social media stuff, like how to, like I offered like a LinkedIn one, I think, and then like one other one. And then I was like, I'm going to do online dating. And I was like, is this cool if I do this? Do you guys think this is weird? And she was like, I think you should just go for it. And if people want to register, that's great. I would keep my classes pretty small, um, like to six people. And so, I mean, I wasn't expecting like it to be like a, you know, a huge seminar or something, but um, only actually, I think technically no one registered, which happens sometimes and it costs no money. So it's not like it was a big deal, but like one guy did end up coming in and was like, I'm here for the online dating class. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I was like, well, I, I am prepared, but you know, I'm not, I did not think I was going to be teaching tonight because no one registered, but I was like, but we can go sit in the room and we can talk if you want. And he was like, yeah, sure. So we went over there and um, yeah, I just like talked to him a little bit and yeah, he was, um, he was an older gentleman. He was a little bit difficult to talk to, like maybe a little bit difficult, like in the sense that he wasn't maybe fully understanding everything that I was expressing but basically i just kind of tried to walk him through you know we're going to go on okcupid and like you're going to create this profile and like this is like what you'll put in each of these boxes we didn't like go into the questions that okcupid asks you or anything like that um i didn't like get any personal information from him i was just kind of like this is what it is fill it out and then otherwise i i remember i actually did take the picture of him for him on his smartphone that was funny and then also would kind of like talk to him about like messaging etiquette i think i might have written like one of the messages that he sent to somebody probably we ended up meeting twice i ended up like having a follow-up with him and then that was it the art of sliding into someone's dms i love it basically yeah (laughs) um so no it was a very weird it it was very weird i never offered it again obviously and i and like i said on the show i never saw him again so like he probably met somebody (laughs) we can only assume i hope he did i honestly hope he did uh you also have a collection of metro fair cards from different u.s cities Two questions. First, what city has the best card design? And second, what's your favorite U.S. metro system and your favorite international metro system? Cool questions. Um, Which one has the coolest card? Uh, I need updates on a lot of these, but I would say I think that the Washington Metro has pretty cool cards. Um, They have like different designs on them and I think that that's cool. I also just think that the Metro card is truly like so iconic. It's is it gone now? You're at NYU. You went to NYU, right? Yeah. Is the Metro card gone? Um, it's still. Uh, an option, but they're slowly phasing it out with Omni and like tap to pay, but you can still Omni, use it. Omni, right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I hope that they're still there when I'm I'm going to be there in July, and I just like really hope they that probably I can will. Get, yeah. I hope that I can get another Metro card because I actually lost my Metro card that was in the box. So yeah, my favorite system in the United States. I haven't ridden a million of them. I mean, New York is objectively the best and the most fun to ride. I think that when I for, for me, just in the sense that there's so many places that you can go on it, like it just dwarfs every other one. So it's almost like 
why did I even say it? It's in a league of its own. I guess I would say of the other ones that I've written, I'm really impressed with Los Angeles because they're expanding transit in a way that I think is very bold and exciting. And I wish that Chicago would do the same thing. And then internationally, well, I've never traveled outside the United States. So I've never ridden on public transit in any other place. Hopefully I will someday, but I will say that I really like Moscow's map. What's interesting about it? They have a circle line and they render it as a perfect circle. And then all of the lines branching off of it are, um, I'll send it to you later if you want, but all of the lines branching off of it just like go in a lot of really cool directions. It almost looks like a weirdly graphic like Celtic knot and like all of the stations are labeled and it's very busy but it's like you can still navigate it and it's impressive I'm seeing it right here on Google Maps it looks really cool is that like one that's like one line in the center yeah the circle is 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 one is a connector line yeah it's the most I believe it is the most ridden metro system in Europe I think that it has more annual ridership than London and Paris don't quote me but I think it is. Or maybe it has the most track mileage. It ha- it's number one in something. So we already talked at length about your Jeopardy debut episode, but we haven't really talked about your second game against Chris and Carrie. The final Jeopardy category was 18th century names, and you and Chris were tied at 9,200, while Carrie was uh, in the lead with 13,000. The correct response... This is response... so triggering, Jarek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying. The correct Go response on. was, who is Gilbert Stewart? And it was a triple stumper. Carrie lost 5,500, Chris lost everything but a dollar, and you wagered it all. My question for you is, did you decide to go all in because you were confident in this category, or was your wager based on the fact you were in a prisoner's dilemma with Chris? The only thing that was going through my mind in that moment, because I I had achieved the tie with Chris, and I wasn't even looking at the scores. I looked up, and I saw that we were tied. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, in a way, it would be easier if I were in third. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but this just got so much harder. And because I did not study Final Jeopardy wagering, I couldn't tell you. But even if I had studied FJ wagering, this was like a crazy scenario. This is not something that you encounter that often. And so... I just kind of, 18th century names felt good to me. And I was just kind of staring straight ahead. I did not write anything down. I know Carrie was doing math. I saw her in the corner of my eye, but well, I didn't because of the dividers, but I, I figured she was doing math. <laughs> and I I was just staring straight ahead and I was just like, I just have to do all of it, right? I was like, I, I, I didn't do the math, but I just like intuited because Chris also had that much. I, like, I just, you know, it did. Yeah, I think because of the prisoner's dilemma thing, I didn't call it that in my head. I didn't recognize it as that. But I was just like, I don't know. I was like, Chris is going to wager everything or nothing, I guess. And I don't know who's getting it right and who's getting it wrong. And, you know, if Carrie gets it right, none of this matters. And, like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And I was just like, well, I was born in 1992, 9200. Let's go. I did almost wager 1221, which is my birthday. And if I had done that, I would have won. So I think about that sometimes, but that would have been a really bad wager. 9,200, as I've learned since, was the optimum wager. But I came away from that because of the fact that I lost on that wager, feeling like that was a bad decision, which came out in the way that I talked about it. And then people on the Jeopardy subreddit were like, it was actually the right decision. And I was like, oh, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> that, that was an emotional bet. That was, that was not a strategic bet. It was not. Yeah, I mean, when you plug in the numbers into J-Archive's waging calculator, yeah, pretty much 9,200. You got to go for it. You're tied with someone. You never know what they're going to do, so might as well go in for it. But I was thinking about it before I um, I had you on this call tonight, and I did the math, and I was like, hmm, 1,600 looks like a good number here. The maximum you I, could yeah, save up Yeah, 1,600 was the thought that was the wager that I, when I came away from it, after I remember trying to do the math at home, and I, I remember thinking, oh, 1,600. That would have been perfect. I think here's what it was for me. I was just like, imagine if I had made that low wager and then like me and Chris get it right and Carrie gets it wrong. And I could have won the game because Chris bet everything but a dollar. Oh, I would yeah, felt, you're right. I would have felt like crap. I would have really oh. been very upset. So I think that it's better that I went out the way that I went out than going out when I could have I, I guess I technically did go out when I could have won, but I went out making the right decision. Mm. So that felt better. Yeah. You know, I if I wasn't going to win. Was there any part of the Jeopardy contestant experience that surprised you at all? Maybe something you weren't expecting or some contestant myth that turned out to be false? That's a good question. I might have to think for like a second. I guess I didn't necessarily know any like myths. I had like only really known about what it was like to be a contestant on Jeopardy like from what people had disclosed on Reddit. The rehearsal and, bu- and buzzer prep, I wasn't expecting. 
that I thought was cool. I really, I thought that that was great that we like got to go up there and like actually like get like coached on the buzzers. I wasn't expecting the contestant coordinators to be like so involved that they would actually like tell you that you're like anticipating on the buzzer like during a commercial break. Mm. The contestant coordinators in general like just blew me away. I mean, I don't know what your takeaway was, but like, I, I just felt like they like these people. Their jobs are probably actually very stressful. They are kicking ass. <laughs> I was like really amazed. Was just really. Um, Really happy and excited to get to hang out with them. I thought they were all really cool people. Now, be honest with me. Was it actually cold in that studio? In the studio, I, well, when you're on stage, God, no. You know, you're in a furnace when you're on, when you're on stage. A lot of people like... have said that, like, it's cold in that studio, but maybe that was... In the was... audience, it's, it feels cooler. I would okay, say it's on the enough. cooler side. And I think they're doing that because the lights yeah. produce so much heat. Yeah, makes sense. Do you have any other fun behind the scenes conversations or stories that you like to share with our listeners? Like stuff that happened when the cameras weren't rolling? Yeah, I have one and I've shared this. So I think some people listening will probably know this already. But basically, so during Tuesday's game, before lunch, we there was a signs of the Zodiac category. And I was very angry because if you want to talk about something that I could run, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that would be it. That's the dream category. And so when I saw that it was that I wasn't going to get it, because I wasn't in that game. I was like, ugh. And so I was talking to Maria, who I mentioned. Um, she was in that game. She's like the first person that I'm talking to after she gets off stage and everything. And then we're going to lunch and just talking about the game, talking about that category. We're talking about astrology. And then like um, kind of a somewhat larger discussion about astrology is happening like while we're eating lunch. And so I was sitting, seating, whoa, <laughs> I was sitting like right in the middle, basically, and kind of like talking to everybody. And then Amy was like all the way at the front. Amy turns around at one point and starts like talking to us because Amy isn't that into astrology, but Amy reads tarot. We start talking about that a little bit and we're talking about astrology. And so of course I'm like, I have to ask, I'm like, Amy, what's your sign? And she's like, I'm a Gemini. And I was like, that is so crazy because I'm a Sagittarius. We're sister signs. And I started talking to her about sister signs. And I was like, you know, Gemini and Sagittarius were both very like quick witted. We're like, talkative we're kind of like nerdy we are and i was like and i feel like we're the two signs that are probably like the best at trivia i was like in my opinion and she was like oh okay that's interesting and i was like yeah so and i'm i was like you know you better watch out <laughs> that's basically what i said i can't believe i said this oh my god I, like i literally people need to stop talking to me people, like literally i should have been kept at home but i was like you better watch out or something but i'm like laughing and smiling and then you know i did that thing where like i pointed at my eyes and then i pointed at her eyes i was also joking about the schneider slaughterhouse was what i coined it that day and was just kind of you know like talking a lot about kind of like not going crazy but just kind of being like oh you know we're all just here to kind of like watch amy read the answer key or whatever i sound like i came off like i don't know like a jerk or something but it was really i don't know i, I think it was funny but then so i mean obviously that influenced her answer to when people were like what did you think of roan you know that's it in a nutshell because then an hour later i uh i beat her all right so this is my last question for you roan and i think that it's the question everyone has when they see someone win on jeopardy what was the best purchase you've made with your winning so far? And if you haven't bought anything cool yet, is there anything you're keeping your eye on? Without question, the absolute best thing that I did for myself with this money was I bought a couch, a big sectional couch for my living room. My living room has had no seating, no real seating, like basically the whole time. I mean, it has like a, it had like a little love seat and it had an armchair, okay? But like me and my partner Isaac were both like five foot ten, like fully grown men. And we cannot both relax in a room that only has that. And so we got this huge sectional with an ottoman. And it, is, it was literally just delivered yesterday. It is the best couple thousand dollars I've ever spent in my entire life. I'm so happy. I'm like so excited. I mean, I've been, I'm enjoying this and I never wanted to end, Jarek. But I'm so <laughs> excited to hang up and go sit on my couch. Yeah. Fantastic. With that, that brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you so much, Roan, for coming onto the podcast to talk and reminisce about your historic Jeopardy victory. Really glad we were able to do this together. And who knows, maybe I'll be able to get Danielle to do an episode about her win over Matea. I was thinking, I was DMing her today. I was thinking like Giant Killer Roundtable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like we all need to talk about our experiences, especially now that I'm, uh, well, I mean, there's me and Nancy, I was going to say. Like mm. I'm, I'm jokingly very angry that Danielle won today. <laughs> um, obviously but yeah and also i was just gonna say like i'm just i'm so excited for your like tournament of champions coverage mm. I, I hope i hope people are interested in coming on i i hope so but, um. yeah well i was just gonna say i mean if like i would love to like just talk about 
not my experience, but like Jeopardy in general, like on your pod whenever you want, basically. So I don't know if I did a good job or not, but like if you ever want to have me back just to talk about Jeopardy in general, I'm just saying I love to talk about Jeopardy. Always a pleasure to talk about it with people, especially you, Jarek. You were wonderful. Thank so you. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you so yeah. much. Tis the season for Trivia Titans and Slayers, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. I'm so excited to see what's next for Danielle and what's next for the season and so much exciting stuff coming up if you love Jeopardy. We, we are... Uh, we're so lucky. Congratulations once again on your success. And before we sign off, where can people find you online? Is there anything or anyone you'd like to plug or shout out? Go right ahead. Yeah, um, nothing in particular to plug at this moment, I guess. But I will say you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Transit Diagram. Perfect. Thank you. And now this is when I close out the show by asking you to please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Post Podium is available on all sorts of listening platforms, including Amazon Music, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. So make sure to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. I've been your host, Jarek Bruel. And remember, if someone asks what you're listening to, always phrase your response in the form of a question. What is Post Podium? See you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.